Hello, I'm Letitia, founder of personal coaching company Looper, and this is the New Leaf podcast. New Leaf explores the practical, emotional, and sometimes messy side of getting back to work after having had a baby, but with a particular focus on pre and post baby identity. In each episode, I interview incredible ladies and sometimes the odd bloke to find out quite how they manage their returns together with their challenges and vulnerabilities. In the age where the pressure for female perfection and having it all has never been higher, welcome to New Leaf. Follow the podcast on Instagram at at newleafpodcast to find out more and follow me at loopergrowth to find out about my prenatal and postnatal mama coaching program. Well, I am rounding off series one of New Leaf by giving you four really amazing ladies for the price of one. Hamisha, Laura, Emily and Bex are going to be the stars of this episode, where as part of the roundup of this truly bizarre year, we can be left with some little gems to make us think about motherhood, our working lives and everything in between. I think my real lesson to close off this series is within what you can hear from every guest that motherhood is what absolutely makes you and irrevocably changes you. It gives you roots. It is a separator, but also a joiner. And with every single guest I've interviewed, I have felt a huge connection after hearing their incredible stories and marvelling in how shared an experience it really is. Each woman on this episode has some real gems in their story ranging from practical advice to appreciating our parents and our loved ones to taking control of our lives and carving out our own paths. It's a real mixture that I hope reflects the highs and lows of real life. And after this bonkers period as mums, hats off to everybody for surviving, I think we could all use some little gems as well as some time to reflect. Let's kiss 2020 goodbye now. So press pause and grab a lovely coffee or something stronger if you need then relax and just enjoy this episode. Thank you for your fabulous support of series one of New Leaf. I couldn't have done any of it without you. My first guest is Hamisha Mehta, mum to Anya and Neha. Hamisha was still on maternity leave after second baby Neha when I interviewed her. I say maternity leave, but she was also managing to squeeze a CFO job for her husband's company and a trusteeship for a charity into the mix. She's an award-winning chartered accountant of all things, and Hamisha and I discuss a huge range of topics, from being assertive but respectful of family members' suggestions when it comes to all things mum and baby, as well as the wisdom, tradition, and science behind some incredible home remedies that she describes. We also discuss the cultural and generational differences she experienced with her own mum and mum-in-law, but also the massive benefits of grandparents and support in general in those early days. Finally, we discuss the incredible phenomenon of little girl confidence and her desire to raise her daughters as outspoken, assertive and strong little leaders. Introducing Hamisha. We met back in, I think, 2014 on a project at the Ministry of Defence, I think it was, right? Yes, I do remember that when we basically, we almost lived together because everyone was up there so much. So you are on maternity leave with your second. So tell me about your two little girls. So my eldest is nearly three. So she'll be three in November. 
and my youngest is now nearly very nearly six months old so she's a a complete lockdown baby. She was born at the end of March, so about a week after we went into lockdown. So her experiences of the first six months of her life are quite different to my eldest's. Completely different. It was very surreal, I think, because it was very early in the lockdown. Every time I went for an appointment, the measures that were in place at the hospital got stricter and stricter. Initially, my husband was allowed in. There wasn't any distancing. You just have to wash your hands or use sanitizer. And then I'd go back the next time and they'd say, no, your husband's not allowed in. And then the next time it would be, there's only three people allowed within the waiting area. And it just got more and more strict each time I went. I was really fortunate in that for the birth, my husband, Chirag, he was allowed to be there and he was allowed to stay for the rest of that day until the end of visiting hours. He wasn't then allowed back until he came to pick me up. So that night, that night that I was on my own with Neha, so my youngest, it was hard because I'd just had surgery. So C-section surgery, you really shouldn't be moving. So that was tough. And I forced myself to move. And obviously the, the midwives, they were fantastic, but they were short-staffed. And as a second-time mum, I knew vaguely what to do. You can remember, but I do feel for any first-time mums during that time because the NHS just didn't have enough people available. So it was very surreal. Thankfully, they did discharge me the next day which compared with the birth of my eldest, when I had to stay in the hospital for three days, I was very glad to be sent home within about 28 hours of giving birth. That is remarkably quick to go home. But Neha arrived safe and well? Yes, she was perfect. I was really lucky in that we'd always planned prior to COVID that my mother-in-law would come and stay with us to help with my eldest when Neha was born. My mother-in-law actually came down uh, a little bit earlier than she'd planned because we thought this COVID thing, it seems like all the countries in Europe are going on lockdown. It's only a matter of time before it happens here. And so she actually came early March and pretty much moved in. So then we didn't let her go back. <laughs> we said, uh, you're here now and it's lockdown. So you you just stay put. And she was more than happy to do that because it meant, you know, some, a lot of quality time with grandchildren. How is this different between pregnancies? Because um, I know that lots of people have their mothers to say, but mother-in-law is definitely <laughs> unusual. So, so with Anya, my mum and my mother-in-law took it in turns because they were both working. So they took two weeks off each and then came and stayed or came frequently in that time. With Neha, because we hit lockdown, my mum, as much as she was around the corner she couldn't come and stay because she was still working so we we just decided okay well mother-in-law's here so she basically took care of Anya because obviously nursery is closed as well having a newborn and a toddler at home without an extra pair of hands and my husband working I don't know how I would have done it and uh, post c-section oh yeah and post c-section add that in the mix I think it's a pressure that we put on ourselves. We chose to have kids, therefore we should be able to do this. Whereas actually, yes, we chose to have kids, but we should be able to do it with help because you do need help. You can't do everything. One of the things, I guess, I'm Indian by heritage, so there's quite a lot of cultural emphasis around looking after the mum 
after she's given birth. So it was a no-brainer that I would have mum or my mother-in-law around to help me, especially in the first few weeks. So they literally, like between them, they just did all the cooking. This was both occasions. So both with Anya and Neha, they sorted out my meal. So where a lot of mums have to meal prep whilst they're like nine months pregnant, I was lucky in that I knew that food would be arriving, whether in parcels or one of the mums coming to my house and just making stuff. So I didn't have to worry about cooking. The flip side of that is you have to eat what they cook for you. So, <laughs> so my cravings for, I don't know, pizza or mac and cheese weren't necessarily met because there's certain healthy foods that support your milk production and all of the Indian mums and mother-in-laws are very big advocates of. So I ate a lot of fenugreek. Everything I ate had fenugreek. I smelt of fenugreek. But I actually love fenugreek, so that's really good. <laughs> yeah. I can't stand it, which is even I harder because I really don't like it. Um, oh no. So a bit harder just to go on delivery and order Wagamama's yes. or Nando's. Yes, exactly. In those early days, it's a huge strain to be yeah. thinking about meals as well when actually you need to be focusing on feeding or just bonding and having yeah. that skin to skin time. Completely agree. And you don't have the time to cook in the way that you would have previously because babies for at least three, four months, unless you have an angel sleeper, you don't know when they're going to sleep or for how long. And you might plan to, oh, okay, hopefully I'll get 45 minutes now. So I'll make some food. And actually they wake up after 15 and then your whole plan goes out the window. And I'm very much a planner. You said that there was a lot of support, at least from a food perspective, around things like breastfeeding. So were there any particular cultural nuances that you've noticed between Indian culture and British culture in that space? So around the feeding, I'm not sure to what extent it was cultural or generational. So things like when we were all born, both my mum and my mother-in-law lived with large extended families. And so as much as they wanted to breastfeed for six months or however long, they physically couldn't because of the demands of living with an extended family. So where they wanted to breastfeed for six months, they might only have done it for two and then moved on to the bottle because of the practicalities of, okay, there's a big extended family, we all have to cook. And then the the gender roles back then were, were a lot more rigid. Which so is so expect- ironic because mm. what can be more feminine than breastfeeding your yeah. child, right? Yeah, exactly. So there was that aspect. Also things like weaning. My mum and mother-in-law's generation was you wean at four months. So mum or mother-in-law would, would mention these things. I, I keep saying that I'm really fortunate that I could say, no, this is the guidance now, so I'm going to follow that. I do have friends whose mums or mother-in-laws were not as receptive to what the current guidance is and quite frequently gave them criticism or advice that they didn't really want to hear. I didn't have that. I was very lucky. And if there were suggestions, it was suggestions that I never felt pressured to take. There were a few kind of food things, like I mentioned, the fenugreek, and there's a few other things that my mom was like, you should have this, it will stop your back aching. And I was like, yeah, but it tastes really bad. But you know what? I've not had backache. What's the food? Because I swear every mother on earth has backache. It's called uh, katlu, K-A-T-L-U. 
So it's an Ayurvedic thing. And I think it's made up of 43 different ingredients from fenugreek to spices to jaggery. It's this combination that has been passed down through generations. And each element in it does have a medicinal or healing property. The reason I know this is because Chirag Googled it because he was like, you're making Hamisha eat this thing and it tastes horrible. Let's actually find out what's in it and why. And uh, there was some science. So I was like, okay, I'll eat it. And boiled up fenugreek water is meant to help with milk production. I had it both times. With Anya, I drank literally exclusively that for about four months. With Neha, I had it for about six weeks and then uh, I switched to taking fenugreek tablets because like this is easier so I took the Indian advice and kind of adapted it amazing and did it help definitely I feel like everybody's going to be googling this now it's it's funny because with Anya I did seek out a lactation consultant at one point because I had a blocked duct or something and it really hurt and she came over and one of my NCT friends came over at the same time and we both spoke to this lady and she was saying that fenugreek tablets is something that she recommends and my other friend who's not Indian started taking it and it made a difference to her. That's amazing. I don't know the science behind it so I will caveat that but yeah it seemed to to help a few people. So we've spoken a bit about Anya and baby Neha but what did you do pre-baby? I trained originally as an accountant, and then I moved into consultancy, which generally involves working with lots of different people. And it allowed me to use more of my relationship building skills. But I was getting to that stage where I was starting to advise people who I couldn't with conviction say, I've sat in your shoes. Because obviously, when you're advising CFOs, there's an expectation that you really understand their challenges. And for me personally, I thought I've never worked within a finance function. So why should you believe me? I'm not sat in your shoes. So I made the decision then to move out and Yeah, it was very different moving into industry and working in a finance function. Culturally, it's very different. And the other aspect was I wasn't in central London anymore. Because when I moved, I was in my late 20s. But I really struggled that there isn't that social aspect of work that I had when I was in the city. But then I got used to having more time for myself and more time for my family and more time for my then boyfriend, but now husband. And it was quite nice. I I learned that I had free time. I wasn't working every evening. So I took up hobbies. I was like, I'd never had a hobby since I started work. I'd never had time. So that's when I became a trustee at Aspire, which is the spinal charity. And that's really close to me which means that I can do bath time, bedtime and travel literally five minutes down the road to make it for the board meetings. And then since COVID, that's been the thing that I've continued to do, even though I'm on maternity leave. It still must be a bit of a balance there. And is Anya back in childcare? How's that all working? We have a shared calendar. If it doesn't go in the shared calendar, it, it can be moved. Well, if it's not in the calendar, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. It sounds like Chirag's been pretty proactive as a partner. Now, with two kids, Neha's still breastfeeding. We try and get them to bed around the same time, but Chirag will do Anya's bath and bedtime because it's too much for one person to do everything. Obviously, weekends, we're all home together and we'll try and do some activities. So he's taken up gardening uh, and 
growing things like chilies. And Anya loves it outside with him. That's so cute. Yeah, <laughs> it is very sweet. She she does enjoy it. She does notice all the bugs. She's very observant. So if something is slightly out of place, she she will tell you. I'm trying to create the environment where bossy isn't bad. And when you read these things like, oh, if a boy or a man is bossy, they're a leader or they are strong. I'm trying to to use that kind of language with her because I don't want her to grow up thinking, oh, she can't share her opinion or be made to feel like she's not allowed to have a voice. There's something that I've read about called Little Girl Confidence. And I've really started to notice it, particularly with my nieces and my friends who have little girls. The confidence level is amazing in little girls, like really astounding. And I was trying to figure out why I found it so astounding, because I think obviously being outspoken and being a leader is not something that people necessarily associate with young girls. But the toddlers that I've seen so far, my God, like they definitely are not shy. Yeah, that makes you think, why do they become quiet? Because I don't imagine either of us were particularly shy toddlers. You learn to hold your opinions back. You learn to not say something because it could be perceived in the wrong way. Whereas when you're a toddler, you say what's in front of you. It might be very obvious. You tell it like it is. And we don't encourage girls to continue to do that. And I think that's a large part of why I say our generation of women maybe do hold back a little bit because they don't want to be seen as bossy or overly opinionated. So I think it's about teaching our girls that it's fine. You have every right to share your opinion. Your opinion is valid and you should voice it. Tell me about this award that you've got and all about that journey, because I know that this has all happened in amongst you having two kids and the whole stream of other things that you're doing. So when I went back after maternity leave with Anya, I was thinking I want a new challenge. And so I looked at my CV and thought, oh, okay, I've spent last year on maternity leave. How do I make my CV stand out? And I knew about this ICAS Young CA Award. It's essentially a type of 35 under 35 kind of thing. And how do you approve that you've been the best accountant? How? So it's not about accounting. The award is in recognition of standing out within the community, either in what you do in your day job or what you do outside of work. So I sent the application in, or rather I was nominated by a colleague for the top 100. And the kind of things they're looking for are, what is it that you care about within the profession? How do you see the profession changing? So for me, accounting is a I don't like using this phrase, but it's, I think it's used often enough for me to not offend anyone. Uh, male, pale and stale. So my view is that it needs to be relevant to the new members that are coming into the profession. And those aren't all white and male. They are a much more diverse group of people. And so I spoke a lot about that in the interviews and what I thought ICAS could be doing and should be doing to, to stay relevant. The second aspect that I think they liked was my involvement in my husband and his business partner's company. So over the course of the first mat leave and now the second, I've become much more heavily involved in the business. 
And we're at the stage now where I've come in as CFO because we've grown to a size that requires that, which is very nice for me. It seems like work is a really big part of who you are. And a a lot of people on maternity leave, I know, who maybe are in jobs that they don't like or whatever, just don't really even want to be looking at anything whilst they're on that maternity leave. So where do you think that kind of came from? I think it's keeping my brain busy. So I like the buzz of doing something intellectual. It creates sparks in my brain. Was there a point at which you realised that you sort of needed that? I think prior to having kids, I knew that I would always want to work. I could never see myself as a complete stay-at-home mum. I've worked really hard to get where I am and I want to carry on. Also, it's really important for me to be a role model for, for my girls, that if you want to have a career and you want to run a business or if you want to work, it's possible and you can do it. It's hard. I'm not going to lie. It's hard doing both. But if you want to do it, you can do it. We've run out of time, but thank you so, so much for your time. Hamisha has done this entirely in Neha's nap, which is an extraordinary feat. I know. So, yeah. Hats off. <laughs> feat of engineering. So well, well mm-hmm. done. And thank you so thank much you. for giving up that valuable nap time, which I know usually thank is for you. showering or eating. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Tish. Next up is Laura Kataya. Laura's story is a sad one, where her mother tragically passed away after a long battle with a brain tumour when Laura was seven months pregnant with baby Logan. She beautifully and eloquently talks about this journey and what it was like to be pregnant with a parent whose health is declining and how it is to grieve before someone has really gone. I feel like it's really important to share Laura's journey as there is a huge community of women out there who are mothering without mothers. Laura said that a part of her went when her mum passed away and unfortunately it is a really sad fact that most of us will have to live with one day ourselves. It is so important to appreciate the family we have around us and 2020 is probably the time we have most appreciated this. Laura talks with incredible positivity, even when talking about something clearly so painful and difficult. She describes her mum as a really positive person, and it is clear that this lives on in Laura. She talks about the incredible joy and care that community nurses showed her mother throughout her illness, and stresses how the whole it takes a village concept really isn't just about babies. It's about everyone in our extended village, from the infirm to the elderly, and that supporters need supporting too. She had the most beautiful celebration of her mum's life rather than a funeral, and the happiness with which she describes this experience was so touching. Introducing Laura. So Laura and I were NCT friends, so met back in... When did we start? I know, it seems like a very long time ago now. Remember it being really dark and cold, so I think it was like late 18. Yes. Because we were all pretty prego. And I was the weird girl who insisted on sitting on a ball throughout oh, all of yeah. our sessions. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember why. There was a reason. I think like all of us were getting, I think you put it out there with the ball. Yeah, I, <laughs> I just went for it. We were in a church hall, as so many NCTs are, on very plastic, very hard seats. So tell me about what you do. So I work for a high street retailer. I manage their online business. I work with a lot of like department stores. So I think particularly at the moment, that's why I'm quite busy, obviously, with everything that's going on. 
maybe people aren't quite so into splashing the cash. So it's been a tough six months of figuring out our way through it. I've been at my post for about eight years. Mm. So it's my other baby. So it's been tough to see that change. Tell me about your immediate family unit. It's myself and my fiancé, I should say. I still can't get used to saying that. (laughs) Partner, fiancé, Matt, so the two of us, and then Logan. So yeah, our 18-month-old. We don't have family immediately close nearby, so I'd say it's us. And then I'd say it's really good close friends. I know the answer to this question, but in terms of how proactive or reactive your fiancé has been, how involved has he been? Yeah, so we did shared parental leave. So I went back to work after six months and then Matt took over for three months. In terms of that, I would say, yeah, gold star. Not sure he had much choice in it, but yeah, (laughs) he was very involved. So he has done the whole packing a bag, getting Logan out of the house, dealing with him first thing in the morning, all the way through to the end of the day when you don't know where the hours have gone. He has been there, I think, as much as I have. Before babies, I was like, six months, plenty of time. That's loads of time. I have the six months and then I'll just go back to my job. And actually, it's not. They're still babies. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I thought, oh, bags of time. But I had to make the decision probably about four or five months to let my workplace know a bit in advance. And once we flipped all the paperwork around, which is very easy, by the way, I think only like 1% or something uptake the share parental leave, but it's so easy. And I think I did have reservations, but in my head, I was just like, I've had to give birth. I've looked after him. And Matt is as much in this as me. And I wasn't going back five days I was going about four days so I was trying to be careful and it is like a delicate balance but he can also take that lion's share. So what change did you see in Matt from him as a person and from him as a dad? I think more of your personality traits come out which I think happens to everyone (laughs) once you become a parent. I think anything that was small maybe gets magnified. I think that's what we found. So with Matt he can be a warrior. So I think that came out more so because obviously you are you worry anyway. But I think if that is what you're like, it's going to be magnified 10 times. So he is so on it. And it was the organisation, I think, making sure he had everything that he could possibly need when he goes out. Be prepared. and Nothing can go wrong. It taught him you can be as prepared as you want, but you'll still have this baby that's going to do what they're going to do. But I think that worrying side of him came out in the let's be prepared, be prepared for everything. I understand that you experienced a huge loss in your life before Logan was born. So my mum in 2017, she was diagnosed with a brain tumour and it was a grade four GBM, which is geoblastema. We went through two operations. First one went really well. And then the tumour came back, I think it was about six months later, and she was feeling really strong. She dealt with the chemo really well and the steroids and everything. And then it came back, yeah, six months after the operation. It was a a primary tumour, so we knew it might come back. And then they did like follow-up scans and it had come back again. And it grew pretty quickly because the first one, they didn't know how long it was there. Sorry, and I should say the reason we found it was because she collapsed at home one day, just like fainted. My dad phoned me and was just like, been in hospital overnight, classic parent. They're like, don't worry, 
it's fine. She's awake now. It's absolutely fine. And then when they did the MRI, that's when they found the tumour. So I think that's what caused the blackout and fit. She had a bit of a fit. And so that's what a tumour can cause, especially in the brain. And that's usually a symptom of it. But she had no other symptoms. Nothing had really changed. It was just this seizure she had. So then she had the second operation in 2018. And at that point, my dad very much didn't want my mum to go through that operation again. Your parents retired? My dad had just retired. My mum had just retired as well. So for them, they were just about to start looking at going on holiday. My mum was like an avid member of our little village. So she was doing all the community exercise classes. She's a massive part of that. And what she carried on doing actually after the first operation, she was fit and healthy. But it was that August of 2018 my mum and dad decided, yeah, no more operations and to phase out the treatment. Because I think it was at the point where we knew this tumour was very aggressive. And I think it was taking their toll. And it's that kind of quality of life Mm. versus carrying on and not having that quality of life and spending your time as you're going to spend your time. So that was in the summer. And that was actually when me and Matt got engaged. And I think already it was It's hard. I think if anyone knows a parent, a friend who has gone through any cancer treatment, they're going to be changed. She was already changing. She knew who we were. Like it wasn't like she didn't know who we were, but she would come out with random things. I mean, one actually quite funny story was the fact that Matt had written a letter to my dad to propose, posted it. And then I think my mum got the post and opened it and then she whatsapped thinking she was whatsapping her sister whatsapped me no (laughs) because in the letter Matt had like obviously asked to propose to me and I kind of laid out when he was going to do it which I think in hindsight I'm just like maybe you shouldn't have done that so then I got this whatsapp from my my mum like all confuddled because by that point she was finding it quite hard to type and I couldn't make much of it but I was getting the gist of it not the Norway bit but that he had the ring and so I had a hint I think at that point (laughs) quite a big hint did you tell Matt don't think I did I didn't want to spoil it so yeah yeah. oh bless Matt knows now (laughs) yeah sorry (laughs) you were saying so it got to a stage where after the second operation she just was declining and not necessarily herself anymore the second operation my dad didn't want her to have because I think he saw obviously how evasive it was and the treatment afterwards but she wanted to and at that we were happy to go with that but I think we were all in agreement that if she was happy to not continue then that was just making her comfortable and trying to enjoy the time with us I think rather than going back and forth to the hospital was the right decision to make there's a great podcast called Griefcast. it's brilliant I would advocate that for anyone that's lost someone, however they've lost them. And a lot of people say if they've got a partner, a relative, a friend that's gone through cancer treatment and it has changed that person and they then decide to stop treatment. I think you're almost grieving for them before they have died Mm. because they're not the same. And I think we didn't expect how the tumour would take hold. So the August we stopped treatment. It was probably maybe six months later when she died. And now I think back, I'm like, well, was my dad told how that would impact? Did anyone say, look, this is what's going to happen? 
because I think that would have really benefited. I don't know. Maybe it's good not to know that gradually she'll stop being able to walk or feed herself. Mm. Maybe that's not a thing that you want to know. But I think for me, I'm a bit of a planner and I think I want to know. And depending on your circumstances, it can be very hard. And it's when do you ask for help? So we got in touch with Macmillan and the local nurses and also the local hospice. So that was really helpful. When it got to that point where she couldn't, she couldn't walk, so she can get up and go to the toilet and things like that. It's not just the person that's going through this horrific disease. It's people around need to look after themselves. That is something, quite rightly, people just forget. And at that point, I was pregnant as well. So it was about a month after Matt proposed. I think I fell pregnant. So I was going back and forth to my parents early on in my pregnancy. And my mum had a fall and my dad had gone downstairs and I went to help. And that's when I realised I couldn't because I was five months pregnant. So that's when it was really tricky for me, I think, being pregnant and wanting to help. Were you even thinking about being pregnant and how were you dealing with antenatal appointments, etc., with all of this going on? I mean, I think part of it was good to have, because it's a pretty big distraction, being pregnant from my mum, which is bizarre. So in a way, it was quite, if you can say it, good to have focus on keeping me healthy. But I go to a lot of my antenatal appointments and people will be there with their mums. And I think it was like those times where it'd suddenly be like, oh, yeah, I'm here on my own. Oh, yeah, she can't come because she can't come. I kept getting this fear, almost irrational fear of transferring. If I got really sad to the baby, I was just like, Mm. oh, I'm just going to have like a really sad baby. I don't think you're alone in that at all. I think lots of people get worried about being upset or anxious when they're pregnant and transferring it, for sure. But even rationally, as you say, oh, it's just an appointment. I don't need my mum here. It's the emotional side of things and the fact that it's a very deeply personal and very deeply female thing to go through. At different points, it'd suddenly be like, oh yeah, can't ask her. All those little questions that you have going through this insane experience. Like, what time was I born? how much did I weigh again? You suddenly have all these questions. And I realised then how little I knew. She did know that I was pregnant. We did show her the scam. So I think I take great comfort from that, that she knew. A lot of people I think have dealt with people that have gone through cancer treatments and a prolonged period of that person declining. It is a relief when they do die especially if you've had to deal with years, months of treatments and then the gradual decline. This is what not a lot of people end up talking about is that relief because you realise they're no longer trapped, not being able to get up and do things. And it's like no one wants to see anyone like that. I think when it gets to that point, you're just, you gather at peace. I think you've already some ways said goodbye to them. How far along were you when she passed away? Seven months. Mm. About six weeks after Christmas is when she died. We were lucky enough to have carers come in every single day. And that was actually amazing. Even on, I can still remember on Christmas Day, hearing them come in at half past six in the morning, like ring the doorbell, come round. I was just absolutely astounded. And they would talk to her in exactly the same way that they'd spoken to her four months previous 
when she could talk to them and their whole attitude was just amazing I mean we know how much we value those carers in the community I was just in awe of it I was like it's Christmas day you are not with your families it's 6am and you're here you're bright and bubbly and it was just great to see them I think we ended up enjoying when they used to come it was just amazing these people how they do it I don't know did you feel like this experience changed who you were as a mum to Logan at first I thought it would but it's it's a hard one because I've got my experiences with my mum and I think the most I've taken out of it is I constantly think is this what she was thinking at this point is this what she was worrying about I think you do lose a little bit of you because it's a parent they've they've been there from year dot they're part of you and they've helped build who you are I can't help but think, yeah, obviously a part of me won't be the same again, but I hope I can show Logan how she was, what she would have said. I think that's all I can hope for. What was she like as a person? She always had something positive to say about people and was a complete chatterbox. She was that helpful person that if she saw someone needed something, she'd be there wanting to make sure they were okay she was never like see a downer in a situation I think she was always just that positive person so instead of having a funeral for her we actually had a I don't even know what you would call it maybe a celebration we went to our local pub in the countryside where we live and just held like a open house and managed to get all of her ex-co-workers family cousins etc And just got everyone together and just had food, had drinks. And everyone kept saying to me, oh, my God, this is so perfect for her. She would have loved this because she'd have been gossiping Mm -hmm. with everyone. And I think (laughs) that's like when we did, because my dad was very apprehensive about doing something like that. And then afterwards, he's like, this was completely the right thing to do. So I think for her, it was all about people. That must have been an unbelievable sense of closure for your dad as well and as well as you too to have got to the end of something that you're probably feeling a little bit apprehensive about and have all these people coming up to you saying how much you would have enjoyed it that must have been amazing yeah I think it was it was the best thing that we could have done a funeral was not for me for me I want to celebrate and catch up with people that knew her and I think we needed that as well I think when someone's gone through a long deterioration felt like we were just eking out the sadness I was just like I yeah. can't then have a yeah. funeral where we're, it's really sad because yeah it is really really bloody sad but it's just we've dealt with it for six seven months two years with the first operation don't have to deal with more sadness I want to deal with people being oh my god do you remember this yeah it's strange how entrenched like funerals are in our culture and I'm always really intrigued to see how other cultures do it But I do think that you're so right. I think particularly after someone's had such a long decline, you want to remember them for who they were, all the amazing things that made them them. You don't want to dwell on the death. And I think the funeral, it is is a bit of a dwelling. I totally echo that. I think you're right. We had lots of people afterwards when I told them we were having this gathering that were just like, are you having a private funeral? There's not some secretive oh, wow. funeral yeah. happening. But my, but my dad was like, I think 
we definitely pushed him into it. He was happy to not have anything. And then afterwards, he was so full of joy. I mean, I'm sure that lots of people listening, it's quite inspirational in a sort of very strange way. Obviously, everybody probably will go through this, but to be able to know that it doesn't have to end with something like that, I think will be hugely inspiring. I feel that there's so much more that we could talk about, but sadly, we've run out of time. But I just wanted to say how much I learned actually from hearing you talk about this and you explained it so articulately and was so unbelievably open so I wanted to say a huge thank you for sharing your story because I know that a lot of people who've been through what you've been through will really take a lot of comfort from what you've said. Oh no I think if it can be any help to other people that are going through it or have been through it bereavement is a journey that never ends and that along with motherhood yeah it's so complex that we all need to talk about it more I think it's just been privileged to hear your experiences so thank you no worries next up is Emily Button Lynham Emily is an inspirational mum having quit a long stint in the rat race and leaping off the corporate treadmill to do her own thing by setting up her own business during her maternity leave with baby Rufus and during a pandemic She demonstrates really well what being your own boss truly entails and provides a really modern twist on what it means to be a mum in this day and age, brilliantly articulating how perhaps people in our generation aren't so bothered about being all things to all people necessarily, but are more bothered about retaining their own sense of identity by carving out the time to do the things that they want to do whilst also being mummy. She owns this unapologetically and I really love that about her. Emily has a January 2020 group coaching course available on her website at emilybuttoncreative.com under packages. So if you're feeling inspired, head to that website to find out more. Introducing Emily. So back in, I think, October 2018, yep. is that right? Yeah, yes. So, yeah. We were both doing an NLP course. I think I had just quit my job. Emily was still in her previous job. I was early days pregnant and yeah, we were on the same course and you'd done your hypnotherapy qualification by then, right? What was that like? I'm really intrigued. It was really good actually. Like hypnotherapy, I think when people think about it is like very woo woo and putting you in a trance, but actually the hypnotherapy (laughs) that we did was really about centering yourself and you go into a trance like state but not in the kind of Darren Brown way where he gets you to do certain things. Yeah, I mean, when I think hypnotherapy, I think of kind of you are feeling sleepy or you yeah. know, a little Britain sketch where yeah. the guy's like, look into my eyes, not around the eyes, yeah. that guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, it was completely um, different to that. And using it as a tool to aid coaching was really interesting. Yeah, I can imagine. So tell me about your family unit. So who is in it? So my son, Rufus, who will be a year next Tuesday, which I am so sad and happy about that, like joint emotions. It's so funny. So Rufus and then my husband, Lewis, and my dog, Max. You said that you were feeling sad and happy about Rufus's first birthday. So why is that? It seems like yesterday that he was born and it's lovely to see him grow and he's at a really fun age I think the first six months is obviously really difficult but I almost feel like I don't want my baby to grow up and I feel quite emotional about that 
it's a funny feeling like you want them to get to the next stage the whole time like I keep on saying to my husband I'm like oh it'll be so good if he can walk and then on the other hand I'm like no I want you to be a baby I want you to be tiny and need me and that kind of thing so yeah it's a crux of emotions really so tell me about what you do I'm a career and life coach and I basically ramped up my business during lockdown which was an interesting time because of the uncertainty and the economy so previous to that I worked for nine years in financial services and the travel and lifestyle industry and I actually resigned early on in the year from my corporate job to take my side hustle full-time I guess and to go fully into that and that was a decision that I had been planning for a good couple of years but it's it's amazing I I love what I do and so I do one-on-one individual coaching I host webinars and workshops I also write on my blog and and yeah oh it sounds like you absolutely love it it's quite a change to just be like, no, I'm going to go and set up my own business. So what inspired that? When you said you were brewing it for two years. Yeah, I think for me, I probably had like a bit of a late quarter life crisis. I didn't really think through my career. And don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean I didn't work hard, but it, it felt like it was almost going to the next level. So I worked my way up, got promoted every couple of years. And I got to this point when I was a director at 27 and all of my peers were 10, 15 years older than me. And I thought, this is amazing on paper, but something was grinding away at me. And I think what was missing really was the alignment to my purpose and my passion and being my own boss and actually helping people and and giving back and helping the world and with my team I invested a lot of time coaching them and seeing them develop and mentoring people but that was a small portion of my day really so I was actually thinking about okay so when I eventually want to have a family even if I was to work part-time at that director level it wasn't the norm really. So I started thinking about how can I scope out a life and career on my own terms? What do I like doing? And then from 2018, really, it was about doing the business on the side, building it up, focusing on social media, building my own website to get it to the point where I was like, okay, this is something that I could fully go into and being on maternity leave and really needing that mental stimulation that was really important and that's the kind of route that I went to and I guess I wanted to see what I could build on my own and I'm definitely still on that journey and there's been peaks and and there's been troughs like with any journey really but it's like pushing yourself forward and I guess testing your limits yeah absolutely obviously I'm going to agree with everything you're saying because our stories in some ways really mirror each other yeah but I I wanted to dig into a bit something that you said because I know that people like Sheryl Sandberg who's a bit of a hero of mine by the way if anybody listening to this and hasn't read her book Lean In or has heard of it that hasn't read it yet I definitely implore you to read it you don't have to take everything it says for gospel and there are some criticisms of it that I'm sure that we could go into on this podcast but what I like that she says is that it's very easy as women to take your foot off the gas pedal 
because you're anticipating all of these things that society and also within ourselves think about like when are we going to have children yes how am I going to fit this in it's quite a common thing that Cheryl talks about which is you start to just slowly kind of think well am I going to go for this promotion because I just got engaged or am I going to go for this big job because I've been married a year now and we're going to be thinking about babies or whatever and what do I want to do and her kind of attitude was don't take your foot off the gas just keep going and figure it out when you get there and I think that's a great, great attitude. However, I also think that in a lot of ways, that's easier said than done. And we're fighting a huge societal pressure and also environment where just as you say, part time doesn't happen very often in those leadership positions. Yeah. And that's so interesting what you were saying, because I started my director role, I think the month that I got engaged or the month after I got engaged and that was the feedback I had from a lot of people in terms of well you're going to get married and then you're going to have kids why don't you just carry on in the role that you are or take a lateral move and I had to quite actively fight against that and the advice I had definitely came from a good place but it is so interesting about that thought because as Cheryl says that could mean that a couple of years before you think about having kids you take your foot off the accelerator so I think and one of the drivers of me setting up my own business was to create a business on my own terms to work with who I want to work with to work on things that I love and and to prioritize that as well as being my own boss and I think my ambition hasn't changed since having a child but the boundaries that I have put into place has changed and I think creating something for yourself means that you don't have a ceiling on what you can achieve but you are doing it on your own terms. Being your own boss will definitely not work for everyone and there's probably some listeners right now thinking god I could never do that and that's fine but I just think once you have children your boundaries might change your version of success might change and it's trying to help create a career that complements the life that you want to live and I think we have this view in society that work is work and it's always tough and we always don't enjoy it and it always feels like a slog but does that need to be the case And actually, I think in this new digital age, especially with things like lockdown and people working from home more and not having to commute, actually, there's much more control on the individual now in terms of making that work work for them. Yeah, I guess you and I have gone through this journey of being in the work that feels like work and then finding the work that doesn't feel like work. And it's just you want to share it with everyone, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think what you were saying about creating your own career environment that works, that doesn't have that ceiling. It's another female tax, isn't it? Which is that if you want to create something that works for your family, etc. Some people, you know, ourselves included in this equation, feel like you do have to take that, frankly, pretty big financial pen- penalty yeah. to set up your own business and stop Uh, a big portion of your income or that consistency of salary etc and let's be frank about it it's a lot easier for people like us to do that if you have a partner that earns well enough to support everybody and keep everybody going and there'll be lots of people listening that think well 
oh my god, either I'm a single mom, I'm completely by myself, or actually I'm the breadwinner, and I can't do that. And I think that's a, it's another example of where it's sort of sad but amazing that so many women have started their own businesses after becoming mothers because the modern workplace just doesn't really seem set up for mothers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you think about the nine to five bums on seats mentality. And again, a pandemic that we've been in this year, actually, there's become much more of an acceptance of the need for flexibility because of childcare, because of hobbies, because of looking after relatives that are sick, all of those things. That means that you can't be there nine to five. And actually, there has to be a semblance of flexibility. So who would you say was Emily pre-Rufus and who would you say that you are now from an identity perspective? Oh, that's a good question. I think pre-Rufus, I was much more impulsive. And I think post-Rufus, Emily is much more grounded and much more centred. I think life is definitely crazier and the juggle is definitely real and I hate that because I'm the worst housewife in the world. But oh, me too. I, yeah, but I think I'm much more grounded and I hope I'm much more present um, and in the moment. And I think that that grounded and that centeredness that you refer to, I think is one of the most amazing, amazing positives to come out of motherhood, which I don't think that people tell you about, actually, that your tolerance for bullshit goes down. And it, it's like a real position of strength that I, I just don't think I had before. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the more that we're realistic about what is important to us and what do we want to prioritise, and then also what can we outsource? Like I joked about earlier, I'm not a good housewife. I hate doing that stuff, actually. So what I'm having to weigh up at the moment, and I know that this is definitely from a privileged position, is actually, how can I get someone to help with that? And I think that's what we have to be realistic about, because I don't think we can do all of those things. We can't be all of those people and putting myself under pressure to do all of those things, because I just don't feel it's achievable it's almost like that definition of having it all has sort of shifted because yeah. I don't give two craps about being a perfect housewife for example whereas perhaps in the previous generation that was still something that was expected to some degree but I'm sure that you've heard this because it's a classic corporate speak annoying analogy which is that there are four burners in your gas stove which are friends family work health and you pick three <laughs> Yeah. So you can't have all four burning like max all at the same time and will tend to be that one is slipping. And when I first heard it, I was a bit like, oh, what load of rubbish. And actually, I think it's quite true. I think one of these always does tend to slip. I do feel like it's a sliding scale. And I think some weeks you might have one set of three, another week you might have another set. But the more that we're focused on what's important to us and making sure we're spending our time doing that, I think the much more happier and fulfilled we are. And actually, I think that takes effort because that changes over time. But taking time on a Sunday to basically reflect on the next week and be like, OK, how do I want to spend my week hour by hour? There's only 24 hours in a day we can't have and we can't make any more hours 
So it's about is there ways that you can be more efficient and it's fitting all of those things in a bit like a can feel like a Tetris puzzle at times. Definitely. So let's say people have an additional child or people get a promotion. You still have the same number of hours in the day. So you can't just create more hours and exert exactly the same amount of energy. You do have to spread yourself a little bit more thinly and appreciate that even Beyonce only has 24 hours in her day or Barack Obama or whoever you want to talk about. You've only got a finite amount of energy and a finite number of hours in the day. Yeah, absolutely. And then one more question I will ask just before we go, which is, what's the best thing that motherhood has taught you? I think the greatest thing that motherhood has taught me is to be much more focused on what's going around me to try and get out of my head. I don't think I'm great at that, to be honest. I'm constantly thinking about 101 things, but it's something that I'm constantly practicing especially when I'm with my son, to really focus on what are we doing in the here and now rather than thinking what happened before, what's happening next, all of that stuff that I have juggling in my brain. So it's definitely a journey and it's definitely a process, but I'm trying. Thank you so, so much for your time. It was so interesting to talk to you. Before we go, could you just let our listeners know where to find you, social media handles, etc.? Yeah, definitely. So my website is www.emilybuttoncreative.com and also on Instagram, I am Emily Button Creative. But it's been brilliant to speak to you, Tish. And yeah, I've loved it. Thank you so much. Last but not least is Bex Scotton, a Cambridge graduate and a principal at the prestigious LEK Consulting. In other words, pretty damn senior. In a traditionally male-dominated industry, she simply carved out her own return to work after having baby Teddy, in the absence of any formalised plan that worked for her, and frankly showed us all how it's done. If I'm really honest with myself, I think in a corporate job I would have just accepted the status quo and complained about it. And Bex is a great example of how just applying some proper planning and collaborating, having open conversations with her workplace no doubt paved the way for herself and also other women in her company by setting a really powerful example of what a return to work should look like. Bex shows us that we can really build up the return to work in our own minds, when actually, more often than not, we are freer to manage our own returns than we think we are. And that sometimes there is no harm in asking for something different to what you're given first time. If you don't ask, you don't get. Introducing Bex. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Hi there. Thank you for the very kind introduction. So pre-Teddy, pre-baby, how would you describe your job and what you did? Sure. So I've been at LEK for 10 years. Um, Never thought that would happen. It's always quite high pressured, but that culture of genuinely wanting to do the right thing is not something I want to give up. So I'm very invested. Over the years, yeah, definitely ups and downs. You spend more time working than you do any other single activity. Yeah. There's no other single activity that takes up as many hours as working. That's huge. And if you get yourself into a cycle where it's like, well, I'll be fine once this project ends or Mm -hmm. I'll be fine once I'm on holiday or once the weekend comes. It's just, there's no way to live really. 
And I realized that I needed to make the day-to-day sustainable and the day-to-day enjoyable. And so I went through that mindset shift. And once you start seeing it as a longer-term thing, you realize that you need to make that investment. And then that philosophy has underpinned everything since becoming pregnant and and becoming a mum because I then needed to figure out how to come back to work in a way that's sustainable. I think that's such an interesting point that you've picked up on because as you so accurately described, work, no matter what you do, can be super mundane and super boring sometimes, let's be honest. But it's the same for motherhood. It's the same. And I think what can be really challenging with motherhood is that the weekends, it's not really a break. Like it is a break, but you can't take a day off motherhood really because even when you are away or somebody's looking after your child I mean you must have this with Teddy as well but in the very very few days that I've I've managed to have completely by myself or with my husband you just miss your child so immensely and you're worrying about them and you can't really take a a mental break from it in in the same way no no there's no mental break from from being a parent, I don't think. And in the very early days, the newborn days, there's so much to worry about. I remember, I think, saying to my mum, oh, it's just stressful getting worried about this. And she's like, welcome to motherhood. <laughs> so true. I don't think it ever stops, sadly. And I think that's actually a very helpful lesson because once you realise that it's not going to go away, that, that worry and that anxiety or, you know, always thinking about them and thinking, are they OK? What do they need? When you realise that that never goes away, you self-moderate it because you're in for the long haul. So, yeah, you have to watch it. Balance doesn't have to mean balance every day. And sometimes you need to just focus on work. And other days you just need to focus on your family and fine. And actually just accepting those ebbs and flows instead of making the strive for balance stressful in itself. Mm. Definitely. I feel like the motherhood journey obviously doesn't start when your baby is born. It starts from before then. And um, what I remember specifically through pregnancy and through the early days, etc., is just the onslaught of unsolicited advice. But how was your pregnancy in that respect? And how did you look after yourself in that way? Yeah, it's interesting. My early pregnancy was quite tough. I had some health complications and it turned out to be nothing in the end, but it just causes a bit of of worry. And Mm. the impact that that had was I didn't really want to talk about it too much with people. And I, I think that probably helped. I think it's where the internet can be at its best and at its worst. I like to pick your one or two experts that you listen to and then just ignore everything else. (laughs) (laughs) I think that is an extremely solid piece of advice, which I slightly wish I had also had. I think pick a lane Um, because, as you say, I think the Internet can be a help, but also a massive, massive hindrance. I do think there should be advice that says pregnant women should not use random Internet searching. And was there any advice that you ignored versus advice that you found particularly helpful that sticks out in your head? I think the working whilst pregnant piece is a really tricky one. And my company at the time had a quite flat policy, which was that 
as soon as you announced your pregnancy, then conditions came in to support you not working late, etc, etc. And it was very well intentioned. But for me, I took a much more phased approach where second trimester essentially carried on as normal. And then third trimester, I took a more significant reduction in what I was doing. So I wrote that plan down and got it signed off. And that made a big difference. So was it something already in place where you said that your hours were monitored or was that something that you curated? I just curated it because the policy that was in place just said no late working after 7pm. And I felt for me, because I was already in a reasonably senior role, just in my job, it's not feasible to say, right, at seven o'clock, I'm going to turn my laptop off every day and I'm going to do that for eight months. But where you do have the chance to come up with something that is suited to what you need, I think it's really worthwhile. And actually going a little bit over the top to write it down and talk it through with whoever you're working with does actually make a big difference because everyone wants to do the right thing, but often they don't know what that is. And so you kind of need to communicate it and over communicate it it was agreed in writing and everyone was clear and it's funny that you say that because in a sort of weird way I feel like some of the corporate culture training must have come in quite handy because if you want something done you write it down you always make sure that there's a written record of anything that you want to happen and I think it teaches that diligence over managing other people's expectations yeah and I think it's just not assuming that other people will know what you need or or what you're going through I guess coming on to the the return to work it's so personal to you and it's so unique to you and for you it's the center of everything but to the broader office you've been gone and then you come back they've had to carry on without you so to you it's this it's this big return but to them it's just our backs is back great yeah. So you you really have to, I think, take that responsibility on, I think, to try and do that and just not assume that others have got the, the capacity to think exactly about what you need. Everyone likes a plan. In that sense, I, I was very lucky. And I think it meant that when I was coming up with a plan, I never came up with a plan that I thought was the right thing for me personally, with no regard to the job and, and how to get the job done effectively. And I think this is one of the most challenging things is that you have to think about both together. And I think often people do one or the other. So they think about, well, you know, the job was a five day a week job. And so that's what it needs to continue to be. Or they think about, well, I, w- I want to work three days because I, you know, I only want to put my child into childcare for three days. And therefore, that's what I'm going to ask for. And I know a lot of people who have their work have accepted that request but then have made no effort to adapt what the job is. Absolutely. I feel like that's just an amazing analogy for just how return to work is in general at the moment, which is that people understand the basic principle, which is you would like to come back on reduced hours. So they're like, great. And it's the next bit. That's the kind of disconnect for people. So a good friend of mine was coming back to a job, but it actually she just happened to be coming back to a different job. So completely new team, new department, new everything. And she was dealing with a slightly older fashioned bloke. And he made a really big thing about saying, I don't want to be doing your job for you when you're not here. And she was a bit like, well, hang on. This job is designed to be a three day a week job. So if we're doing it properly, you shouldn't be doing anything because... No. 
in terms of the amount of work that you're giving me, it should be a three day per week job. And she said that she just really had to go that extra mile to win this guy over and prove that it wasn't a hindrance to her in the team. But it wasn't a mistake because he said it a few times, which is a real shame. Yeah, it's it's so tough. I think a lot of people go through misunderstanding and I think it is really hard. It's it's really hard. It's really tricky to get it right. And it's a refinement of what's working, what's not, and trying to get that balance. I think it's always helpful to think of it as two phases because there's the return itself and then there's the, the steady state or the new working pattern that you want to get to. But the initial phasing is really important as well. And I phased back slowly. I had six weeks with no client projects and I, I ramped up. I can't remember exactly now, but I think my first day back was a Thursday and that was all I did that week. <laughs> and then I think I did a couple of weeks of two days and then I did a month of three days. And then I went back four days. And again, I was very lucky because because I've been at the firm a long time. They were you know, very receptive to slow phase back. And I know that not every job can accommodate that. And was it you who initiated that? Yeah, it was it was my suggestion, but it was a two way thing to suggest a, a phase back. I think it's keeping your expectations really low for those first couple of weeks. On the Thursday, I felt that if I was able to get Teddy to childcare, get on the train, get to the office, go home again, that was success. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, it really is just about that. I think it's also why I came on this podcast, which is very much out of my comfort zone. But I think it is such a unique time and obviously everyone experiences it differently. But I do also think that speaking to people who've gone through it, you can learn a lot. I didn't have that many people to speak to who had gone back to work into a similar role. By the time you add all that up, there's not that many examples. And I didn't have that many people to talk to who'd gone through it. So I think, yeah, it's very similar in a way to pregnancy and coming up to that, where it's just all of a sudden you just so want to help people because you know that advice and support network is so beneficial. Now I feel like I'm so happy to speak to anyone who's going through a return to work journey and I'm so happy to help. What would you want Teddy to think of you as a mum and how you handled this period in the future? Gosh, kill a question at the end, hey? I'd want him to know so strongly that there was just unconditional love. Like everything that Sam and I are doing is fundamentally for our family, but that's sort of very deep, kind of solid foundation level. That does not mean, therefore, spending every second with him and, and doing that. And fundamentally, I think it's trying to be the best parent that you can be. And for some people, means going back to work. For some people, that doesn't. Is there one piece of advice that you just want to leave our listeners with who are maybe feeling worried about going back to work or, or struggling with a return to work currently? Put some time and some thought into it, as opposed to just fitting into a, a box. And accepting the box, right? If the box doesn't look right to you. Yeah, yeah. So it's similar again to birth. Have a plan, recognise it might change. And I think that advice that you left us with, which is all about being flexible, thinking it through well in advance and just applying that extra piece of planning will resonate with so many people who are nervous about it. 
thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Well, everyone, that's the end. Thank you so, so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to New Leaf on wherever you get your podcast from so that you don't miss out on my next episode. Feel free to message me directly on Instagram at at Podcast if you like and on at Growth if you are feeling inspired and want to find out about my personalised pre and postnatal mum coaching programmes. Have a lovely, lovely day and if you are a parent, have an even better night. Bye everybody.